Well, hey there, and welcome to the Enough Ready Podcast, the podcast that empowers consultants and coaches to forge their own path to success. I'm your host, Betsy Jordan, and today we're talking about my favorite part of building a thriving consulting or coaching business, which is all about intellectual property. There's so many things I love about content creation, but the biggest is that content creation, for me, is what has allowed me to attract clients from all around the world. So this is why content creation support is such a big thing I offer my clients and I help them one-on-one in a VIP day or through my Purpose to Profits Academy. And whenever I work with my clients on intellectual property, they often have really important questions such as, you know, how do I draw the line between free content and paid content? How do I actually make money from my content? And the biggie is, how do I keep other people from ripping off my content? And it's for these reasons, I'm so excited to have Erin Austin on the show today. She's an attorney and a business strategist, and she helps entrepreneurs create, protect, and monetize their intellectual property. So if you're ready to take your content creation game to the next level and unlock the full potential of all your great ideas, stay tuned and let's get started. So without further ado, let's welcome Erin to the show. I'm very excited. Thank you, Betsy, for having me. So before we get into a whole bunch of conversation about intellectual property and how you create it, protect it, monetize it, I want to go back in time a little bit where, um, from what I understand, you started your career as an attorney. Is that where your first starting point was? Yeah. And I still am, believe it or not, but yes, I, yes, but, but I had a traditional start at a large corporate law firm. So doing kind of that hourly thing, you know, on the, on the, uh, on the escalator in a law firm. Yeah. So then um, did you start off with a specialization in intellectual property or how did you get drawn into the whole world of intellectual property? Yeah. Oh, no, I did not start there. I started as a corporate securities lawyer again at a, at a big firm doing public company work, doing uh, public offerings and M&A work. And I was in San Francisco at the time and I'm from the East Coast and I'd never been to Los Angeles. And so one weekend, a friend of mine who's from LA said, hey, let's go down to LA. I'm like, okay, sure. And uh, and first, let me just say that San Francisco was in the middle of like a record-breaking number of days of rain in a row. Like just, you know, like, oh my God, am I ever going to see the sun again? So we go down to LA, we land, we flew, and it was sunshine and palm trees, and we rented a convertible and we're driving. I'm like, oh, this is it. <laughs> I went back, I quit my job, moved to LA and, you know, went in Rome, you know, I got a job in the film business working at Warner Brothers. So that was the beginning of my IP career there. Wow. That's a very impressive. So what'd you do for Warner Brothers then? Uh, film. So uh, when you're, you know, film is intellectual property. So there's all sorts of rights you have to acquire. We got to acquire the rights in the script, or if it's a book you're making into the film, uh, all of the deals with the talent, the directors, producers, actors, there's music that goes into it, all sorts of things that need to be cleared. If you're going to record, you know, at the Hollywood Bowl, then there's things that you need to have rights to. And then the distribution of it when you're actually getting it into theaters, or at the time it would have been in videos, <laughs> you know, at box, Blockbuster. Um, those are all agreements that are IP related agreements to get those rights in or just uh, distribute those rights out. So a lot of people would be wondering like, well, so why wouldn't you not just stay? That sounds like a cool, sexy job. Like, why wouldn't you just stay at Warner Brothers and continue doing that type of work? Like what made you decide to leave that type of career and start a business of your own? Yeah, well, 
I did that for a while. Then I went to a smaller um, independent, what we call the independent company that uh, Blair Witch Project was our, our claim to fame. And they, there just came a time where I was ready to do something else to leave LA. Uh, when I was there, I was childless. And, um, and I got pulled back to the East Coast, which is um, where I'm from. I were, I'm from outside of uh, Washington, D.C., and, uh, and then, you know, the decision was, what do I want to do? And so for many years, I continued to work with, you know, those same people just as, as outside counsel. So um, still working, helping them with rights acquisition and rights distribution. But I also have worked with other what I'll call um, large clients, like large corporate clients, helping them with their IP based uh, businesses. So I work on lots of commercial transactions for uh, companies in like publishing and market research and data. And so all in that IP space. And then came a time where, um, you know, I'm like, can I, you know, instead of helping big companies get bigger, like, can I work with a different population that are close to my heart? You know, it is important to me. You know, I believe that wealth in the hands of women can change the world. And you know, to work with a population to help more people get access to wealth building. You know, we can, you know, create a fair amount of income and have a very comfortable life that is income driven. But in order to create wealth, we really have to have assets. And then I'm looking at, okay, what's my skill set? My skill set is in intellectual property. Uh, who is the population who? is needs me, that's not a big company, that needs me to help them build intellectual assets and use that to create wealth. And that is expertise-based service businesses. And so that became, it took me a while to, frankly, to figure it out. But once I figured it out, I'm like, ah, it was just so obvious to me, like, this is who I should be working with. And so, you know, there's been a transition for me because my, the language that I use is is you know big company language, and it's the assumption that everyone knows they have IP and they want to protect it. Like that's where all my big clients come from. They 100% are there, and so now there's a fair amount of education that's been involved with making helping people understand that you know IP is everywhere. When you're an expert, you're creating IP all day, every day, and we need to make sure that we're controlling it so we can help build assets with our with our expertise. This is so, so fascinating. I have so many directions I want to go here. <laughs> so it sounds like on the whole, like, so in your careers, you started off as more of a, like a general attorney. When you moved to LA, you fell into Warner Brothers and working with this these big organizations where you have a lot of the legal stuff is around ex, you know, getting intellectual property, protecting yeah. it. Then when you move back to the East Coast, it was seems like that was sort of like a reflection time period. You know, you became a parent, and then you started really dialing into who you want to help. And it's really more of the smaller type of business or individuals. And that's what got you to move into this space that you're in now. Is that, am I hearing you accurately? Yeah. Yeah. And it was surprising to me that so many people um, don't think intellectual property is for them. So I've been really enjoying like having lots of conversations like this one uh, creating lots of content around kind of making intellectual property seem accessible to, because it is accessible. I want to just make sure that everyone understands that it is and it's, and the, the importance that it plays in your business. And so, um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of part of the evolution. 
So I want to ask you a couple of questions before we really dive into the whole world of really what's your intellectual property and how you create that body of work. Um, I want to get clear on two things. One is you were talking about the wealth creation different from income. So what is your definition of wealth creation versus income? Well, I look at it as if you, so long as you're working and billing, you're creating income. But at some point, if you want to decouple that either the income generation from your time or you want to stop working altogether, then there has to be some asset there that can work without you. And when you are an expert, that asset is going to be intellectual property. So is it something that either another person, such as a team member, an employee could could execute or that a buyer could execute? So it can't just be, it can't reside in your head. It can't just be your force of personality. It has to be something that you have created an intellectual property asset about. Regard If it's a methodology, if it's training materials, if it is a course, if it is some sort of software. So there has to be something, it doesn't have to be something that's you know kind of sold on the market, but it has to be something that another person can use to create value without requiring you. And so until we do that, we are just going to have income so long as we're doing it. If we want to have something that we can sell and therefore create wealth with, um, we have to create some sort of asset, which would be IP. So it sounds like then from a wealth creation difference between income generation is it's decoupling from time. It's something that you can sell that is not connected to your time. With intellectual property, it's getting whatever's in your head manifested in some sort of body that you could sell in Correct. a different way rather than just within yourself. Um, I def this. I think this is going to be the bulk of our conversation, but I want to establish one other thing before we get into that one. You mentioned that wealth creation in the hands of women is going to change the world. So that seems like a big why for you that drives you. Why is that um, an important belief that you have? Why do you believe that women can't wealth in the hands of women will change the world? Yeah, so I don't have my stats with me, but I do have them on my website that basically, but we're just looking at the research is that women give a greater percent of their wealth to charitable causes than men do, even when they make less. So they uh, share it with their communities more. They support their families with it more. They care more about the the impact of their investments like are the investments from things that are uh doing working sustainably versus things that might be detrimental um they talk to their children about philanthropy and the importance of philanthropy more and so there is a a um magnifying aspect of like me help there's only so much i can do as an individual but the more people i help create wealth and therefore spread that wealth, that there's a magnifying aspect to it. And so that's why that is important to me. That is so fascinating. So I love with your business that you got clear on a couple of things right away is you got clear that you wanted to go from big firms to smaller firms and you wanted to work with individuals and help them experts. And it sounds like your big why too is also working with women. And it seems like you took those couple of things and it's like, okay, now that's your foundation of your business model. And that's what you're all about. Absolutely. So love that. Yeah. Love yeah. that. Um, I definitely want to, I would love to explore more with you at a different time of like how you came to that clarity. Cause that's a big thing when I work with my clients on their brand messaging, that is so hard for them to see, but I'm so fascinated by all of this stuff with IP. And I want to, I want to pick your brain on all of this stuff. 
So what would be the difference between somebody who just creates content and intellectual property? So for example, I have like a hundred plus blogs. I have 60 something, you know, podcasts at this point in time. I have courses. Do I have, you know, like, am I monetizing my body of work or what's the difference between having an asset that I could actually use? Like, how do you understand the difference? Yeah. So, uh, I'll start with the definition of intellectual property. And so that is basically an an intangible asset that is protected by intellectual property laws that give the owner certain rights regarding the use exploitation of that asset. And so we have four basic categories under US law. And so we have copyright, trademark, patents, and trade secrets. And so for this audience, we're going to just focus on copyrights. Mostly everything that you mentioned is copyright, Um, you know, patents, you know, that's like pharmaceuticals, that kind of stuff. That's probably not this audience. Um, Trade secrets, you know, the Google algorithm, the Kentucky Fried Chicken thing, that's not this audience either. Um, But whenever we are creating something under, under U.S. copyright law, when we take something from our original ideas and we put it in concrete form. We create a podcast, we write a blog post, we create some copy for our website, we send an email to our list. When we put our ideas, our original ideas into concrete form, we have created a copyright asset. So that is intellectual property. So I, so when I say IP is everywhere, It is everywhere. And by the way, if you're a consultant and you're creating deliverables for your clients, those are probably IP assets as well. If you're, you know, doing research for them or you're uh, designing a website for them, or if you're doing a strategy for them uh, and it's original, those are IP assets as well. Granted, your client may probably owns them, but you're still creating that intellectual property. So our our intellectual property is there. We own it before the creator and it's original. The, the difference I, I think where people get hung up is does it need to be registered for it to be intellectual property? Is it really a copyright if I haven't registered it? And the answer is it is intellectual property at the time of its creation. And so, but the value of getting it registered is that, you know, if somebody else steals it, then you're able to go after them. Or if in the future you want to sell it, they're going to expect it to be registered. But don't let the fact that it's not registered stop you from creating it and treating it like the asset that it is, because it is from the moment you create it. So let's say I just, you know, have a lot of different kinds of frameworks and things like that I create do I want to register them all? Like the meaning, like I get a trademark of some kind, do I want to register them all? Or do I just want to register like my important ones that, you know, wouldn't keep me up at night if somebody, you know, adapted to their own purposes? Yeah. So just, uh, we talked about the copyright. So you mentioned trademark. So the trademark is the thing that designates like the origin of a good or service. So if we go to uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken, for instance, like KFC is their trademark. That's not their formula. Formula is different. That's a different IP asset than their um, their brand name. You know, FedEx, the the logo with the colors. That's their trademark. But that has nothing. That's not the same thing as the system that they use to get packages around the world. 
Um, so for your trademark, um, it may make sense to register it. Um, it has to be very unique. There's lots of, um, it's harder to get trademarks registered these days than it used to be. It has to really kind of be unique. It can't be confusing with anything else. It can't just be descriptive. Um, but a trademark is only as good as the asset that it represents. So the reason the FedEx trademark is valuable is because they have this great system for getting packages all over the place, right? It could be called anything and it would be fine because they still have that system for getting packages anywhere in the world overnight, right? And so or KFC could be called anything because they still got that recipe, right? Um, but for your copyright registrations, you know, if you're creating content every day, like many of us are, the registration, again, is about enforcement mostly. So if you have something that you would say, I want, I, you know, somebody stole this, I would spend the money to go after them, then absolutely register that thing. So if you're writing books, you have trainings, you have something really unique, the thing that really adds unique value to your business or to your clients, then you want to register those. Are you going to register your website content? Maybe, maybe not. Um, your every blog post you write, no, every newsletter you send out, no. Um, so it really is about, um, the, the value that it holds in your business. Cause that would tell you whether or not you're going to go after somebody if they steal it. So some people like trademark their slogans, you know, like I have this concept and they trademark that. Is that important to trademark those as well? Like, and how do you know where that tipping point is even on those things? Like, so it sounds like the big thing of how, you know, the difference between here's my everyday content and here's the stuff I want to really register are the things that I'd be very upset if somebody just kind of ripped off versus like a little myth, like, seriously, you just kind of like use this one. Like I, for example, like mm -hmm. I have a, I have a, I have a blog post that I rank really well for on the five steps mm -hmm. to the consulting engagement cycle. Somebody sort of like took my concept and they modified it. And it's like, oh, well, that's kind of annoying, but I, I don't really care. It's not like I want to be known for the five steps of the consulting engagement cycle. Mm -hmm. So is that the litmus test is like, well, I'm just a little annoyed, but I don't, you know, it's not keeping me up at night or versus the things that will keep you up at night. Like, how do you know? Well, I, I, you know, again, how important is it to your business? Um, it's hard to kind of have a black and white kind of line. Um, but, you know, for some people, you know, what keeps them up will change, you know, depending on, on who they are. Um, there's another, you know, creator who might really care about the, the, the five-step process that you, you mentioned. And maybe that's part of their framework that they use with their clients and, and they really want to protect it. Um, and, uh, but again, you know, when it comes to enforcing, you know, we send, you know, cease and desist letters or something and, you know, don't do that anymore. And most people are responsive. Like they know they stole it and they're like, ah, and they, they don't want to be sued and, and they take step down. But if they don't, you know, certainly, um, non-U.S. entities will kind of go good luck. Um, then, you know, you, you roll on, um, uh, with it. Um, but, uh, but you, it will it will depend on you know the value that you perceive that is in your business and your willingness to put your money where your mouth is about that importance um, to enforce those rights. So that does require hiring lawyers and going to court. 
Yeah. So you mentioned also like with like people who are listening, a lot of them are corporate consultants. And so how do you know the difference between like, this is my intellectual property versus the stuff I'm creating for my clients? Yeah. So there are rules about ownership around, around creation. So I am going to assume that, and if this is not the case, then we need to talk that all of your corporate clients are using agreements when they are entering relationships with their clients. Uh, I should say all your uh, consultants. And so those agreements will have provisions in them that explicitly address who owns the deliverables. And this is where your, you know, those consultants need to really make sure they understand what they're signing. So the default rules are, you know, and I'm talking about uh, copyright here, is that the creator is also the owner unless one, they are a W-2 employee. So they are in-house, not, a, not as a consultant, not a 1099, but an actual W-2 employee. When that person creates something, their employer owns it automatically as if they were the author. And then the other is if there is something in writing and that must be a, something uh, signed as well. So if they are um, creating something for a client and for whatever reason, there's absolutely no written agreement regarding it, then the consultant owns it. The likelihood of that happening, if someone's paying them a significant amount of money is almost none. So there's going to be an agreement in place and it will say, it will have a provision. It will say either ownership or intellectual property or work for hire. And that will uh, spell out exactly how those ownership rights will flow. Most likely it will say that all the deliverables are owned by the client. And so if you are putting some of your own ideas into those deliverables, you're going to want to make sure that you are holding those back, those rights back. So in those circumstances, you'll have a provision that says, you know, all of my pre-existing materials, I continue to own. You have a license to own them so that you can use my deliverables, but you don't own them and you can't then go on and sell them to other people. You just get to use them for your internal purposes with that deliverable. I continue to own you know, my framework and you know, maybe I have some trainings that are part of the deliverables. I continue to own those because I need to be able to use them with other clients, right? And so um, you know, a lot of times that first agreement that comes across to you from the client will say just that they own everything. And so you need to make sure that you're reading those and then you understand um, what rights you are actually transferring to them. So if I were gonna work, let's say, with a corporate client and I have like my own competency model, if let's say, but I'm using it with the client as part of like a group coaching program, mm -hmm. I would say in my proposal or my legal agreement to the beginning is this model is mine. Um, yeah this training I'm creating for you, you know, is like, could they take that training and use it with other groups outside of you? Like they could just, you know, do they own that or making sure that you have that delineation somewhere in there of like what you feel comfortable with? Yeah. I mean, that should be in the agreement. So let's say it's a very large, you know, multi-department uh, um, organization and you have been brought in just to work with the marketing team. And, uh, and you know, maybe it's, you know, team, team building and, uh, and then they want to use it with other departments too. You know, you should have in that agreement that says, you know, but is this just for this cohort or is it, you know, for the year and they can use it with as many people as they like? Um, is it uh, something that you're creating specifically for them because there's something very unique about them 
and that therefore they are going to own it with the exception of, you know, maybe some of the underlying materials. Um, so you, I mean, that will depend on the nature of the business, but that's why you, I mean, agreements are for both parties. You know, they're not just for the client. We think of them, you know, because they send over the 50 page MSA that it's for them, but it's also for you because that is the place where you're going to make sure that it's very clear the limits of what you're delivering to them and what they can use with those, how they can use those deliverables afterwards. So very important. fascinating. Okay. So let's talk about the, like the, one of the questions that people ask all the time is like, where's that line between free content and paid content, you know, and how, like, how do I know what's out there? Because if I want to monetize like my intellectual property, like, how do I know where that line is? Like how much is too much? Like a lot of people give me crap all the time. It's like, Oh my God, you're giving so much away. I'm like, well, that's not like my main stuff, like my main stuff's behind the gate, you know, kind of thing. Uh, right. Right. Well, that I mean, it's a business decision what you want to give away versus what you want to sell. It's all just because you're giving something away for free does not mean you're giving away the intellectual property rights. So when we think about the intellectual property rights, that basically tell uh, tells the world that you own it and the IP rights per- say that only you have the permission to create copies of it, uh, make derivatives from it, perform it, you know, sell it, license it. So you have the exclusive right to that. And if you say, I am going to give permission for free for other people to use that, they just have an, a non-exclusive right to use it. That does not give them any other rights. It doesn't give them rights to copy it. It doesn't give them rights to make derivatives of it. It doesn't give them rights to create teachings from it. It just means they get to read it and use it and learn from it. And so whether you decide to give that away for free or you give it away um, as paid content, then you, um, you, you know, if it's paid, then you may have actual agreement around it if, if they're paying for it. And that may have different uh, use provisions in it. Um, but, but you're never giving away the copyright um, just because you're letting someone use it for free. So. So would it be make would it make sense like if I were going to put a blog post and I have a framework should I just always put the copyright on that framework and should I put a copyright on my blog? Yeah, you should have you know probably every website you know has that footer. You want to have that um, you know the C in a circle, the year of creation, and whoever the owner is. It may be you as an individual, it may be your your company, depending on how you work. Um, and you just have it on there. It just puts the world on notice that you're you are uh, claiming copyright ownership of that material. It doesn't have to be on every blog post because it's going to be at the bottom, the footer in your in your uh, website. And so, just you know, reader beware that everything on this site someone's claiming ownership of. There's nothing here that's you know in the public domain. You know, even though there might be. But um, so. If- so if you're working with a corporate client and you didn't really detail it out, let's just say like you have a PowerPoint for a training, you could put your copyright at the bottom of everything and that will just put the client on notice. And then if there hasn't, if there's an issue, then you could talk about it later. But if you have your copyright everywhere, then you're probably protected, I assume well, at that point, kind of. Yeah, but I'm going to still assume that if you're if you've been engaged by a corporate client, that you will have signed some sort of agreement. And that, that agreement. I haven't, all, all my years, I've never had a client, maybe like once when it was like a public company. I mean, not a public, like a government. I never, I've never signed one of those big agreements. You, that there's not an SOW or anything. You're just kind of, I, I put go. my, propo- I put my proposal and then they signed <laughs> my proposal. 
Nice. Or I say in lieu of in lieu of um, signing, your first payment shows mm-hmm. agreement. Yeah, I don't know if I do. Maybe I'm not doing that right. No, that's, that's fine. That is fine. That's, I mean, that's I mean to have someone you know ha- uh, sign your SOW and not negotiate it is a fabulous thing. And so in those circumstances, you'll want to have in there that you um you know that yeah you own the rights and all the materials that year that you're. Uh, sharing with them. So like, I just kind of throw it in the joint accountabilities, but I don't like, it's not, I don't sign the big legalese documents and I don't present them. I know that other mm. people insist and say I'm being crazy, but that's just the, uh, that's the way I've been doing it for the past you know, 30 years, 20 years. Well, a, a, an agreement does not have to be the 50 pager that we get from, it can be two pages. You really can have everything that you need in a two page SOW. I, I, again, you know, Agreements are not our enemies. They're our friends. So I don't, I don't want um, to suggest that, you know, there's some virtue in not having agreements because there's not, you know, I mean, you really want one, but it doesn't have to be a monster. It can be two pages. You can get everything that you need that makes sure that everyone is on the same page at the end of the day. That's what it's about. Making sure you're all on the same page about the when, the where, the how much, and, um, and then also about the ownership of of any of the materials that are being shared and that you can get all that in two pages. And that is fantastic. Cool. Okay. Phew. All right. So then um, <laughs> one other big question I have, um, and I want to get, I want to move into um, once not like, I feel like we're almost like really well established on intellectual property. I want to get more into details on how you work with your clients. But the one big question I have that's um, I've been wondering about is this whole monetization thing. So it's obvious of like, how do I monetize a course? I put a course together, I I create, I get money for it. That seems like an obvious thing. How do you monetize all the other stuff? How do I monetize a blog, a YouTube channel, a podcast? Like, how do you create this into a monetizable body of work? Yeah, not everything will be. I mean, it has to have value to someone who's willing to pay for it. I mean, anything that, you know, so... Um, you may not be able to monetize directly a blog post other than, you know, indirectly through building your thought leadership, which then, you know, has uh, those residual benefits. But for most of us, um, we will use it to create a business that is scalable. And by that, we use it to create leverage in our businesses. So we do things like create frameworks so that we can very efficiently create results for our clients that um, can either be delivered by us or by our team members, or some parts of it can be outsourced. Therefore, we're able to grow without just working more hours. We'll be able to create a more profitable business uh, through uh, that could be an internal um, uh, SO, SOPs or um, internal methodologies that you're using, or an internal database, maybe research that you're using to help inform the advice that you're giving your, your clients. Um, but it doesn't have to be a product. So intellectual property can be a product. It can be a course or a book, but it can also be things that we use internally to create value for our clients. So those are the ways that we can do that. So, um, but externally ways that we can monetize our intellectual property are through not just, you know, the courses and things, but also licensing our intellectual property to other people. So maybe we are an expert, you know, a DEI expert, and there are other DEI experts that go, look, you know, you have this, you know, assessment that you use that is 
just awesome. Can I use your assessment with my clients as well? And then you can license that to them. Um, or maybe you have, you do DEI training for corporate clients and your corporate client says, you know, we love having you here, but we've got, you know, a million uh, employees all over the world. Can we just license your, your system and then have our HR team deliver it? And so that's another way that you can monetize it. So so that's interesting. So it sounds like, okay, the, the order is, is like, first I have to get from unconsciously competent to consciously competent. I need to get from, I have stuff in my head into like, wait, what am I actually doing? Mm-hmm. And I need to manifest it into like a framework or an assessment or something mm-hmm. like that. So one way I monetize it is like, I use it with my clients and that's like a way to make money off of it. Or I can create materials that I could license to other people you know, or obviously I could create books or um, e-courses or that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But all of it is, is like this frame. It sounds like frame. You're, it sounds like you're all about efficiency. You talk about standard operating procedures <laughs> quite a bit that there's just one part of monetization is just like by, I create a repeatable process yes. that others can follow. And that just in itself as a monetization path, because I could scale yes. from there. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. And that's the way it generally works out with the expertise-based business is that a lot of people, they don't want to create products. You know, if you have a very high level one-on-one business, you don't have an audience of thousands to sell courses to, but you have, um, you know, you have your niche that everyone's, that you're known for. You work um, with, you know, maybe one or two clients a year, depending on the size of those engagements. But to have a process in place that you can deliver and you know how it's going to go, like you, obviously there's differences among every client, but you have your beat. So you don't miss anything. You don't, nothing gets dropped. You, you make sure that all, all the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. And that helps make sure that you are building a business that, you know, continues to, to iterate in a way that's, that's positive, that gets better every, with every iteration. It gets a little bit better and, you, and you're documenting that. You know, that's, it could be just as simple as documenting what you're doing so that you can get better every time um, and get more efficient every time. And, um, and one of the things that you mentioned is not just about um, getting it down. I mean, one of the things that some consultants have a dependency on certifications, like on third-party certifications, and I'm not anti-certification, but if you're using other people's uh, property, other people's IP, then you're not creating your own. And that's, and that's, you know, we can make very good livings that way. And I'm not like, you know, recommending that someone kind of become someone that they aren't, but if it is a goal to create your own assets and to be able to create derivatives from it, such as trainings or writing books or something like that, or to be able to sell it someday, you have to own it. And so um, in order to own it, it has to be your original work. So so let me walk you through like what I've done with a client recently. And could you help me identify where this client could tighten up and improve how they monetize this particular body of work? Mm-hmm. Okay. So one of the things I did with one of my clients in a VIP day, which was really fun, is we got into, she has like, she helps um, her clients develop these relational um, political savvy kind of skills. And we created a whole framework where we use an acronym and we turned that framework into a competency model. And then we took that competency model and we turned it into a self-assessment. 
And then um, some of the plans that we've been talking about is turning that self-assess that whole this whole framework into like maybe a foundational e-course that she could then use and sell individually if she wanted to, or she could upgrade it where I could use that for mentoring. And then I could use the same foundation and I could use it for group coaching and other kinds of corporate kind of work. Where, what would you say to, what would you say to improve this process or where would she need to protect herself or what would be the important things that she should be considering in order to make this as monetizable and as protected as possible? Well, (laughs) the first place should have been, uh, with you. So if she is using a third party to help her create something oh, no, is, oh, me. Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. This is going to be interesting. <laughs> I'm getting, I'm getting feedback right now. I'm, no, I'm like, not her coach. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that would be me. Okay. That'd be you. <laughs> okay. Go on. Is that, uh, she, should make sure that she owns everything because technically now, you know, again, like people don't document things and nothing goes wrong because nobody makes any claims to own of ownership, right? Things go wrong only, you know, when someone makes a claim that you didn't anticipate, but if we're kind of just with inside the, the lines, so then, for me, I need to be explicit as if we're having this VIP day, who owns the intellectual property right. at the end of it. Right. And I, we needed to clarify that because I could actually stake claim to her, her intellectual right. property Correct. because I co-created it. Oh my gosh. I never thought about that. <laughs> okay. So then if I, if she makes money off of it, I could, I could at some point say, well, Hey, wait a minute. If she writes a book. Okay. That's really important for me. We need to clarify who owns what and the coaching yeah. experience. Okay. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I, I got my one person. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. Go on. <laughs> Whenever there is someone involved with creation of an asset, you want to make sure the ownership is really clarified. You know, there's a lot of, you know, some people call them joint ventures, collaborations that are happening in the expertise based space where, you know, you do like a joint um, training or you do something or you have a mastermind and someone contributes a, a module to it or something like that. And a lot of those are done without any documentation. And for, I think for the vast majority of the time, it's, it's a small world, everything works out. But if somebody turns into Tony Robbins based on one of these things, you know, probably, you know, we have issues, right? <laughs> and so we do want to make sure those things are properly documented. So she has her framework that came out of this. And so now when she uses it, when she's using it with her corporate clients, she's going to have her SOW that is going to make clear that she's bringing this framework to bear and that she will retain the ownership. You know, there may be like, let's say they're recording some of the trainings and it will say that, you know, you own the recordings and you can show them uh, to anyone else, but you can't do a live training without me. Like some, you know, and you just need to make sure that that works with your business model. Um, um, and then if she's going to let other, um, uh, consultants use her framework, then she wants to make sure that she has an agreement in place with them that talks about the limits of their use, what they're going to pay her to use it. Um, you know, that they can't make kind of derivatives and kind of claim it as their own. You can't you know change stuff and then say it's yours. Um, and so she'll want to make sure she does that. Um, if she is, um, going to, uh, you know, hope to sell it someday, then she'll absolutely want to have it 
uh, you know, all of her ideas registered. I mean, it wouldn't imagine there would be some uh, text that goes along with this framework. It's not just a graphic. It's like there's a whole kind of system behind it um, that, uh, you know, when we put things in a book form, um, even if the book doesn't sell particularly well, it establishes us as the go-to person for this type of framework. And so people will steal your stuff, you know, because they can change the names and they can change enough to, but when you are the person who is known for creating this type of framework, then people who want the creator, who want the person who's known for it will come to you. The person who wants to go to the ripoff, they'll go to the ripoff. That, you know, like I like, uh, like to talk about the difference between a chef and a cook, you know, a chef will put their recipes like in a book, right? Anyone can see the recipe, but if they want it done by the chef, they go to the restaurant, they go to the restaurant, they don't, you know, uh, so any, you know, and so we should think that, that way also about our frameworks. If we are the expert and we are, you know, there's a difference between getting that experience with us versus getting it with other people. We don't have to obsess about whether or not someone is trying to use our frameworks or not. Um, I mean, they shouldn't be ripping off literally our copyrights, but our ideas are free. Like you can't stop people from using our ideas, but you know, becoming the thought leader, becoming the go-to person, becoming the, you know, the, the known expert in that field is what really what protects us from that. Cause I'm sure a lot of people like use Brene Brown's materials in whatever they do, not even necessarily right. if they've gone through her program, but they right. inspired her, but none of, no one sat with her content, you know, that created it in the beginning. People say all the time, like, Oh, you give away for free. I'm like, well, there's a lot more where that came from. Like I'm more interested <laughs> in my next idea than the ideas right. I had like 10 years ago. Right. That is so interesting. So for this particular client and whenever I do stuff in my VIP days, we need to make it very clear on who's owning what and what the scope is of the partnership. Mm -hmm. And then for this particular client, she really needs to make sure that everything is copyrighted. She's very clear when she works with her clients around the terms and conditions and then be very serious as she's creating this because ultimately other people who are her competitors might say, hey, this is super cool. I could, I'd love to license it. And that's another way mm -hmm. she can monetize it. So right. she's got the actual client work that she can make money off of it. She has a book that she could write about it. She has a course that she could make money off of it. And she could license it, not just to clients, but other practitioners. So now there's like many different streams. Yeah. So, so yeah, again, and, and thinking about the, any third-party materials that might've gone into it, um, such as something she got off the internet or something that she got from a certification program or a training that she did. So, you know, a lot of those things, if you're doing the work one-on-one -on -one using third-party materials that you don't have rights to, like no one's going to notice, right? You're just doing it with your clients. But once you start licensing it to third parties, selling it in books, putting it in trainings, then you really need to make sure that you own everything in there or you have the right to use everything that's in there. Yeah, and so she and I need to have a conversation about it because some of the things that contributed it was my intellectual property of things that I use with clients. And I gave her like, Hey, use this as inspiration. And we lifted actual words and phrases. We just need to make it clear. Like mm -hmm. it's cool. You can use it. I, I'm fine. I just support you. And if you become the next Tony Robbins, I'll just have the pride that you are <laughs> the next Tony Robbins and I contributed to it. The, um, so walk me through a, a typical client engagement. So you work, do you work with men and women or primarily women experts? Yeah, well, mostly women come to me, but I do work with men and women. And uh, and the 
engagement on the, because I have two sides. I have the, where I still do legal services for some people, but mostly I'm developing um, education products so I can help more people. But on the legal side, um, I like to stay in the lane of creating intellectual property and um, you know, making sure you own what you think you own. So I always start with the legal due diligence process because we don't always know, especially if we haven't been using agreements, we've been getting stuff from here and there. So making sure that you own what you think you own and then looking at, you know, based on that and what you want to achieve, um, what type of market do you have? So if we go back to that DEI um, a consultant um, a, a example, they'll be in a lot of times they come because they have these big clients who they just can't even serve them all. And so they want to do the train the trainer model where they're taking their trainings and licensing to their corporate clients um, so that they can uh, train internally. And I like that. Um, and sometimes they come because there's a third party provider who wants to, to license it from them. Typically when that one happens, there's just like one person and, and maybe it makes sense to do it. Maybe it doesn't. But I like the uh, train the trainer model, like licensing your methodologies to your corporate clients because they're not, you're not creating competitors, right? They're pre-vetted. These are people you already have a relationship with. You know that they're not going to like take it and go off and do something with it. Um, you know, you're going to get paid. You're, you know, like having to audit them is not that much of a, a burden. Um, so doing uh, licensing to, to other providers, you know, if you have, it's a completely different market, you know, like you're already marketing to your corporate clients, like now you're marketing to a different group of people. Um, so, but it, it can work still if that's something that's, you know, really attractive. Um, but we, so we work on the legal due diligence part. What do you want to do? What market are you going after? And then we determine what that IP-based revenue stream will look like, whether it's a certification program or a licensing program. Um, and, uh, but if it's something um, like courses or books, I mean, like you don't need me to, you know, write your book. Um, so, so we, so we always make sure we have that firm foundation. I like to say that, you know, the foundation that worked, you know, if you for first for one floor might not be strong enough for two floors. And when we're adding kind of these other layers to our um, IP, then we want to make sure that foundation is strong enough to hold that second floor. Um, and, uh, and then of course, if the very first uh, level of not having your own contracts isn't there, then we also put those in place as well, making sure you have your own custom templates as well, and that you understand how to react when you receive one from the client. So we don't always get to use our templates. Sometimes we have to use third parties. And so what to, what to do in those cases. So big thing of what you do with your clients is like this legal due diligence around like how to like just the basics of like, let's just make sure we're clarifying ownership. And then if I have an idea of something that I want to, I want to leverage in a certain way, you'll help them figure out like, okay, this would be better as a certification. This would be better mm -hmm. as a, a train the trainer, a licensing kind of agreement. You'll help them kind of figure out like what's the smartest, most monetizable path with the content. Yes. Um, I know that um, when we connected like, I think a year ago or so, I remember you have like a free membership site. Do you still have that? Or what is it that like when, when people first want to get into your world and get in your tribe and get to know you, like, what is it that they are, what's their first way of getting in and getting to know you? 
Yeah, well, this podcast and yeah, so yeah, well, podcast is one. So I do have a podcast called Hourly to Exit, and you can find that wherever you get your favorite podcast. And then I also have a email marketing list. Could you say and that again so- with more strength? I don't know why you just said it. Like you could check it out. Can you be? Like, oh, did I? You must. <laughs> can you must check it out? It's really great. And this is what my podcast is all about. <laughs> So I do have a podcast. It is hourly to exit where we talk about the journey from that unscalable hourly model to building a business, a uh, service-based business that can hopefully be sold someday. And so, and you can find that wherever you find podcasts. Uh, and then I also have a YouTube, all of them are, all of them are recorded and you can find them on my YouTube channel as well. And then I have an email marketing list, uh, email list that comes out every week where I uh, talk about different um, issues that interest me, honestly. <laughs> and then I do, I'd love for people to hang, it would find me on LinkedIn, on LinkedIn. I do a monthly LinkedIn live where I talk about, uh, answer your questions basically. So anything, any questions you have about intellectual property, about services agreements, about um, it, you know monetizing intellectual property, uh, so I, you know, do that the last Wednesday of every, uh, the last Wednesday of every month at noon Eastern. Um, and then I have a website that has a ton of free resources on it. Um, including, uh, at the moment, just a couple of paid resources as well. Um, and I do the, have that at hourly to exit.com, um, where you can also access all the things. So. So your website is hourlytoexit.com and your LinkedIn profile is just, I assume just your name, Aaron, Aaron Austin. Yeah, it is Aaron Austin. I I, I'm the OG Aaron Austin. I've been on it for, I think like 20 years. I don't know how long it's been around, but (laughs) I've been there for a very long time. And, uh, and so I have, are are we winding up now? Cause I have an offer for we could, if you have more stuff to talk about, we can, but we could wind up as well. I'd love to just share your offer. Okay. All right. So, yeah. So I'm, I'm really excited about right now. I've just uh, added an NDA primer um, offer. And basically it is uh, one, a plug and play NDA, uh, mutual NDA. It's kind of my favorite version of it. I reviewed a lot of NDAs in my, in my career and so this one um, really protects both parties, is very fair um, and easy to use. And then in addition to the template, I have one that is fully annotated. So it goes provision by provision, where it explains like what exactly it is, why it's important, what it does for you. Um, and then there's another one that is a sample client NDA. So one that might come from a client that's a little bit client biased. And I have redlined it and explained why I redlined each provision. And then finally, a if-then chart that kind of just takes you through, like, if you see this, then you need to do this, and this is why, and a video that goes along with that. So you can find that at my, at hourlyatexit.com. And for any of your audience who goes there, they uh, can grab a 10% discount with a code that I will provide to you. That is awesome. Okay. So for those who are listening, who don't may not know exactly what an NDA is, could you explain briefly like what an NDA is and why it's so important to have the right NDA? Yeah. So NDA, sorry for not making that clear. It's a non-disclosure agreement, also called a confidentiality agreement. 
And for many of us, you know, that first step in the relationship with the client will be to enter a non-disclosure agreement. So perhaps you, they want you to come in and they want to tell you about their project. And then based on that, you will put together a proposal. And so the, before we start sharing confidential information, which is any non-public information about either your business or the client's business, you want to have that NDA in place. And so your NDA will say, one, you won't disclose whatever I tell you, you're not going to disclose to another party. And the other thing about a non-disclosure agreement, it's also a non-use agreement. So not only will you not disclose it, but you won't use it like for yourself, um, except in connection with a service that we're going to provide. So that that is important to have in place. And you know, if you're working with corporate clients, I imagine they're requiring you to, to sign these. I like this as a product because a lot of times there's no revenue attached to signing that NDA. And so sometimes you know, having a lawyer um, review it um, when there's no revenue attached uh, can be tough for people. Um, not that I'm saying you shouldn't go to your lawyer, should. But if for some reason you can't or it doesn't make sense, then the re- resource is there. That's awesome. So is that, and that's on your website. So yes. then um, do you want to share the code or should we just have the code in the show notes? I've done the show notes because I don't have it with me and I'll have to okay. have someone make one for us. <laughs> that's awesome. So there, so people can get 10% off of this particular kit. I can't tell you how important that would be because you don't want to get blindsided when a client puts something and it is going to be client biased. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of nice if you have with your proposal, the NDA and that you initiate it so yes. that you can take control over that conversation yes. mm-hmm. from the get-go. Cause then if you have it, then they're going to be forced to do their own redlining. And it, with your redlining, th- that would help to understand like, well, wait, why are they saying that? And why yes. is that really important? Yes. That's a, that's a wonderful gift. I cannot emphasize enough. Like that's awesome. Cause you do not want to have, just from my experience as a consultant, you don't want to let the client take charge of those things. I take charge of, this is why I don't sign those big agreements is I don't let the clients take charge of my contracting. I take charge of the contracting. So this would build an extra tool in your toolbox. So I think that's awesome. Thank you so much for that. Okay. So is there, is there anything you'd want to tell me about you know, just kind of like your journey into entrepreneurship or about intellectual property or what you're doing. And I'm just not asking you the right question. Well, I, I will first say that, I, you know, I am my own avatar. Like I am someone who, you know, people will ask me like, how long have you been in business? And, and that's almost a trick question because for many years, I can honestly say I wasn't really in business, right? I was kind of a freelancer and I wasn't, building assets and creating assets, which is something that I'm busy doing now. And, uh, and so, you know, going from that, you know, person who's selling their time <laughs> to going to the person who is creating assets is a journey that I'm on along with uh, my clients. So. That's awesome. I love that whole idea too, is that, you know, you don't have to be like super far ahead to make a difference. You just have to be a couple steps ahead and mm-hmm. actually own your expertise. So I think that that's great. And I love that humility of saying, Hey, I'm learning along with you. I don't, I'm not going to be like Miss Guru, but you are a guru when it comes to the protection right. and the legal right. side <laughs> and understanding, you know, what you need to do. Like there's so many insights that I got out of this conversation that you know, for content creation, I've been doing this for 15 years plus plus. And I don't think I've really thought about like, how do you really protect what you have properly? And when you just, you could be lax, but how to really protect even when I go into clients. So this has been extremely helpful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being on the show. 
Great. It's been wonderful to be here. And I, yes, I welcome anyone connecting with me on LinkedIn and asking those questions. Awesome. Well, definitely reach out to Aaron if you are looking to protect your property and monetize and get yourself free from that paid for time trap. Thank you so much for being on the show, Aaron. Thank you. So that's it for today's episode of the Enough Ready podcast. Definitely connect with Erin on her website or on LinkedIn if you're ready to turn your ideas into a monetizable body of work. And if you're really confused and stuck and you're like, I have no idea what to talk about, what to write about, or how do I position my content to attract and engage future clients, definitely check out my services at www.betsyjordan.com forward slash services. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Enough Already. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave me a review and share it with your colleagues and friends. And until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you for tuning in. If today's episode lit a fire in you, please rate and review Enough Already on Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. And if you're looking for your next step, visit me on my website at BetsyJordan.com and it's Betsy Jordan with a Y and you'll learn all about our end-to-end services that are custom designed to accelerate your success. Don't wait, start today.